0: You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science,
1: and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad to have you here with us today. We have a very special guest, Greg Stalkup. Greg grew up on a farm in a small town in Indiana. And learned through that, that although they may not have had a lot, they had to figure out how to solve problems with what they had. This eventually translated into him becoming an engineer by training because he loves to solve problems and did that for a little while in the defense industry, but had the opportunity to shift into orthopedics and fell in love with it. And then this is the part I absolutely love. And I think so many of our listeners are going to connect with today. He found himself, though, experiencing some problems that he just couldn't solve through a big company and realized he wanted the opportunity to go be an entrepreneur and figure those out. And through that, had some mentorship actually from Dane Miller, the founder of Biomet, and Reinhold Schmieding, who founded Arthrex. And They became incredible mentors for him to show him what it took and what it takes to make it as an entrepreneur. But he didn't go do that cold turkey. Instead, he was able to build it as a side hustle. So for about six years, he continued to work in companies but had their blessing to go build his own company on the side and after six years was able to go full-time in it and now those companies are just powerhouses in the industry sites medical does product and process innovation in the orthopedic space and they do an incredible job with that and then for some breakout products where it makes sense to continue manufacturing they have mock medical that can take over and do that. So today you're going to hear from Greg. You're going to hear his story. I'm especially going to spend some time asking about the side hustle aspect because I know there's so many listeners out there that are thinking, how do I get out of this corporate trap? And we're going to talk about the way Greg took, which was not to do it cold turkey, but side hustle. And we're also gonna learn about these incredible companies make a big impact in the orthopedic landscape. So, Greg, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thanks for having me, Tommy. Greg, one of the things that's a really important part of your story is growing up on a farm. And, you know, we don't see it every day where somebody grows up on a farm and becomes a powerhouse engineering process and innovation design business owner. But that's what happened in your case. So, you know, start us there and then walk us through your journey of how you went from growing up on a farm to actually running these incredible companies today.
0: Thanks, Tommy. It's kind of a long journey and I never would have guessed this whenever I started. So, growing up on a farm, we had a small farm in Southern Indiana, some cows and a few things. And, you know, something was always breaking and I had to figure out how to work with that because we didn't have enough money to go buy the parts. So, It taught me how to be very able to be creative to solve problems. So I did that and I learned I liked it. And as I started looking at what my career might look like afterwards, I started thinking about engineering. And I had an uncle that was an engineer and an aunt that she always encouraged me to be creative. And so I went off to school and became an engineer, mechanical engineer. And after that, I went and worked in the defense industry for a while. And I got to deal with some really cool technologies For the US Navy and some stuff that, uh, you know, I learned a lot through. But then in 1991, I decided to go off to another industry. I moved kind of a parallel step and I went over to orthopedics. And I just fell in love with it, as Tommy mentioned in the beginning. And I got to go in and start learning from all the surgeons that were there what was important about their products and learn from the other engineers I was working with. It was one of the best learning experiences I ever went through.
1: What was it that you fell in love with?
0: It was being able to see in people the results of what you did. So I would get to design an instrument or an implant. And later, I would be able to be in the operating room with the surgeon. And he's actually using that instrument to make somebody's life better. So I could see them before the surgery. I could see they were hurting their knee or their hip, and I could see them some period of time after that, after the doctor had worked with tools I'd provided, and they were much better. You know, they were back to normal living. And so, that was a cool experience that I never got to see in defense, and I didn't see that on the farm either.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and I mean, it almost sounds like you got to do some engineering when you were on the farm, even if you didn't call it that at the time, it was, you know, you were machining and doing what you needed to do to make things work. So what an incredible training ground that I never would have really thought about being an incredible training ground for engineering. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, it really was. And especially for mechanical engineers and orthopedics is highly mechanical over the years. And so it was a good place to learn how to solve problems like that.
1: That's so good. So, Greg, one of the things I've learned about your story, you know, you were working with some great large companies and fell in love with being able to develop these products and things. But in the early 2000s, you heard something. It was a really important, big idea that you heard, and it just resonated hugely with you. What was that?
0: That was, that was a conference that was all about the cost of healthcare. And it was specifically focused on orthopedics. And they were projecting with the aging population and the costs of implants that there wasn't going to be enough money in the the medical system in the U.S. to take care of it. So people talking about that. And then they had others getting up to discuss, how do you solve that problem? And speaker after speaker, their solution to the problem was to make the implants less good if you will or less effective by taking away features
1: take away features or benefits to cut the cost which is at the detriment of the patient
0: absolutely there was a little of it that made sense because there's some patients that are very old and not mobile and maybe they don't really need it but it's just not the right way and that's actually in my opinion a very small group so whenever I was thinking about it, I thought there had to be a better way. We can make those products with all the right features at a very economical cost. We just have to be creative in a different way. And so that was really the big idea. And I went back into the large company I was working for at the time and tried to implement those things. And people liked the idea, but it became obvious fairly quickly. It was just never going to be able to happen there because they had other, you know, large companies have other momentums that prevent you from doing things. And that's what got me interested in moving outside of large companies and doing it myself because I wouldn't be restricted.
1: And, you know, Greg, that's one of the things that I continue to see that the larger the company is the harder innovation becomes, right? Because we're so stuck mm-hmm. in our systems, our bureaucracy, our and a lot of those things are needed to help that company scale. But then at some point, they become the Achilles heel. And so you were just experiencing that head-on, that there just wasn't a way to go innovate. And I love it. This is the point where I feel like a lot of people just kind of grin and bear it. Like, we're not going to go worry about it, but it was unsettling enough for you. And you knew there was a better way to do it that you actually decided to take action. But I appreciate this part of your story so much because I think so many people are going to resonate with it. You weren't in a position where you felt you could just cold turkey, go start a new company. Was that because you had a family or what was it that put you in a position where you said, I just can't take that level of risk at this stage of my life?
0: It's a really good question. And you almost read my mind because it was, I had two kids, I had a wife, I had a house payment. I had those things and those responsibilities I needed to keep up with. You know, I couldn't let those down. I wasn't going to take all the risk by just quitting and going and trying my new dream. I needed to come up with a better plan. I guess it's part of being an engineer. You know, you see a problem and you come up with a way to solve it. And that was the reason that I needed to find a different way to solve
1: it. And as an engineer, you took a way smarter approach than I did. You know, I jumped in cold turkey, put my family at all kinds of risk, racked up over $250,000 in debt to try to get our company started. And ended up on the the really severe edge of depression when things weren't going well. You know, I get to tell this story a lot, but I became an overnight success after a decade of failure. And, you know, finally it popped. But if I had quit in year eight, nine or ten, I would have walked away bankrupt or two hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt with no way to pay it off. And starting over in my career Was fortunately in year twelve things actually really took off. We ended up building a nationwide company. And so, you know, listeners, that's two very different paths. And I can tell you the stress of the path that I went down, I would not wish on anyone. I mean, uh, severe depression, severe depression. So, you know, to have an engineering mindset and say, there's probably a way to do this, that is actually a little safer and won't put my family through all that. I love that you had that foresight and wisdom to do that, Greg. And so you were able to work out an incredible arrangement with the companies you were working for that you didn't have to hide a side hustle. You had their blessing to build your company as you continue to work for those businesses. So I think this would benefit our listeners. How did you actually set that up? Did you just go in and talk to your boss or how did you do that?
0: Yeah, it was uh I wasn't at a large company. I'd already started down the path and I went to a company called Nimco Medical over in Ohio at the time. And I just sat down with the owner and said, I'd like to do this. Are you interested in doing it together and can we do it in parallel with this? And he said, Sounds interesting, but it's different than our business. And I said, Well, how about if we do it this way? I'm gonna work sixty, eighty hours a week. How about if I put the forty or fifty hours Towards this business, and I put the rest towards the other, and we came up with a budget that he was willing to add for prototypes and doing different things. And you know, through that process of discussing it, he saw a benefit for his business, uh, and that was in the early days. And then we sold the business, so he didn't care after that. But so it was really just going in and proactive and talking to them and saying, "Hey, you want to do this together?" And you know, it's amazing when you do things like that. And you don't try to keep it all for yourself, but you try to share. People are much more open to that than you would imagine.
1: And you weren't trying to hide it and do it no. on the side where they find out later and then they feel like you're taking their time, their resources. I know examples of friends who have ended up in intellectual property battles because they used a the company computer mm-hmm. to work on their side hustle. Mm-hmm. I love your approach. You just went in, were very forthright about it even offered to have them be involved in it. And Mm -hmm. so there was never animosity that got created through that. But meanwhile, it gave you a six-year runway to be able to build up your company to the point where you could actually step into it full time. And one of the things you shared with me, Greg, during that six-year period, there were a lot of things that you learned. What were some of those things that you had the time to learn during the side hustle period?
0: That's a good question. And that was a big part of the game plan as well, because I knew I needed to learn some things. I knew all the theory from the books about how do you make payroll? How do you go get loans from the bank? How do you go get investors? I'd never done any of that. I knew when I worked at the big companies, there was somebody that did that and the money was always there, but I knew I didn't know how it happened. And so that's what I learned. I mean, that was the biggest piece. How do you work with banks? How do you work with investors? How do you set up to make payroll? How do you make sure you've got enough buffer for bad things that are going to happen? Because they will. And that process helped me with that.
1: So you had the time to really learn the financial function side of the business. Mm -hmm. You already had the technical expertise on the engineering side Mm -hmm. and you had the innovation side and probably a lot of the connections in industry. But learning some of those administrative aspects of actually building and running a business, you had time to do that. I love that. I feel like anybody that's coming into starting a business, at least that I've seen, you almost always have part of the toolkit. And so then either you've got to learn the other side, you've got to bring partners for the other side. There's lots of ways to go fulfill it. But Mm -hmm. I love your approach of you just built in some margin of time for you to be able to learn those things. I mean, it makes sense. As I look at you from the engineering lens, it's like, oh my gosh. I mean, it was just a calculated, logical, reasonable decision.
0: It was. And I got to learn those things, but it doesn't mean it's risk-free. It doesn't mean it's stress-free. While it was different than your experience, I think the other thing that came through this is all the strong connections of the people that could help me later. So, what kept me from getting too stressed out whenever we didn't have quite enough money to do what we needed to do. And should I keep going? Should I bail out later? I had all those resources of people that had helped me sort this out in my mind and help me work through it. They gave me the confidence to get through. Reinhold, for one, he wrote a note in the book that was all about how he started Arthrax, you know, that if you keep doing these things, you'll be successful. Just don't give up. And that they'd be by our side the whole way. He'll never really understand how much that meant to me. And a couple other things that he did specifically that helped our business get to where it is. I mean, it's things that I'll never forget. Doesn't mean it's stress-free, but what it means is that you got people you can go to who can mentor you, give you that support, and give you the confidence to keep going.
1: Greg, I like how you said that, that even though you took this more calculated path, it didn't mean that there weren't periods along the way where you felt like, I can't make it, or how do I keep going? And so I always just want our entrepreneurs to hear that from those of us that are just a few steps ahead of them. No matter what path you take into that entrepreneurship side, there will be times when you feel like, how do I keep going? I have had that in every single business that I've built. And you're hearing it from Greg, even with this way smarter engineering mind than I would ever have in a business launch, still had those times where it's hard. So it's all about just pushing through those times. And you hear it from Greg, you hear it from me, listeners, that having that support system around you from people that have your back and they want to help you and they want to see you succeed is just such a huge difference maker. So I appreciate you sharing that, Greg, so that people don't think, well, uh, if I just take this side hustle approach, life's going to be rosy all the time. No, you still had those hard days, no different than I did, just in a different way. So that's really important. But eventually that pays off. And so you know, let's fast forward to 2008 from a economy standpoint, you know, the world's really in the tank and yet you're finally hitting the point in your business where you can make this your full-time role. So, tell Mm -hmm. me about that period and was it easy to make that decision at that point or with everything that was happening in the economy, was there trepidation behind it? How did that go?
0: There's always nervousness because I'd always had that other anchor and I was giving that up, you know, to go here. But The 2008 crisis and that kind of stuff didn't worry me because right at that moment, we had enough money in the business. We had the right partners. We were in a development phase to develop our first technology. And we only needed a handful of us to do that. So we needed that two or three-year time period. And in my head, I knew we were going to get to the other side of the financial issues. And I thought we could get there. And that's what turned out. So that part wasn't that big a stress for us. It was as I got a little bit to the other side and I needed to raise more money to start doing bigger things and bring more people on board. That's when the stresses started being bigger for me.
1: Were you raising from angel investors? Were you raising from venture capital? What was your primary source?
0: So we, based on advice from many folks, said, be really careful you take money from because You may give up control of your business. And so I made a conscious decision to look at a few angels, people I knew. So I wanted to be with people I knew that understood the industry who are going to be patient with me and could give advice and help. We partnered with a contract manufacturer locally, Micropulse, and they invested some money. But more importantly, space, and we could use them as a manufacturer. So money came from there. Arthrex was one of our investors early on with Reinhold. He's you know the owner of it. And we tried to keep it to that kind of tight group people that would either help us make parts, help us distribute, sell parts, or some angels that would be patient and cared about this community and small businesses here. And they would work with us through whatever happens. So that's how we focused. We made a conscious decision at that point because we didn't need huge amounts of money. We stayed away from private equity and venture capital because they have a model that didn't necessarily fit the way I was comfortable running the business at the time.
1: It sounds like the capital that you did take, most of it was very strategic in that it wasn't just a dumb check in the door. It was also somebody that could help with manufacturing parts or providing space. I mean, a lot of those Mm -hmm. things.
0: Yeah, that was huge. And that was a very purposeful process. And we were very careful as we went through the process and we structured everything to make it easy for that type of person. So we had a valuation of the business and then we divided it by three. And we thought it was a fair valuation. We divided by three to get the number down because we didn't need a lot of money. But we wanted people to know that as long as we survive, you're going to make a return on your investment and we wouldn't have a down round of investing. And it let us be more picky about who we brought in.
1: What a great way to do it. I see so many startups these days, they want to go try to maximize their valuation, but what they fail to realize a lot of times until it's too late is if they do that and then they're not hitting their next milestone or something, one of the kisses of death pretty quickly is having to do a down round and Mm -hmm. just the erosion of investor confidence, there's a lot of spiral. You know, It's almost the self-fulfilling prophecy a lot of times. So Mm -hmm. I love that approach. And Greg, just because a lot of our listeners are founders or soon to be founders, I hope we'll inspire some of them. Did you give up board seats or control along the way in taking some of this capital? How did the governance shake out as you did this?
0: Yeah. So we consciously broke each of these up when we needed Around a technology funding, we split those into a separate company. Sites medical, I own 100%. There's no board, there's none of that. But it's really the holding company, takes care of the accounting, the human resources stuff, the benefits. So when we set up each of the other companies and where we brought the money into, we went in and we said, you know, no special deals. Everybody's the same. Me as a founder, I only had common shares. Every investor got common shares. We did create a board, a three-person board. It happened to be three of myself and two of the other investors. You know, on my end, still the majority owner in all the different businesses. So when it comes to a share vote, I can still take the company in the direction I want. And that was important to me. There was no other rights given. But I think that only was possible because we did a very fair valuation. We had people that understood the industry, people that knew me and my team and knew our that we were going to be, you know, we're going to work until we made it work. You know, if it took 12 years, we're going to stay at it. We weren't going to give up. We, weren't, we took uh, that obligation of getting a return for our, the people who put their trust in us very seriously, and they knew it. So we don't even have regular board meetings. A newer entity we started, we have board meetings and regular things set up there, but it's a four-person group. But everything else, we don't have board meetings. I'll send a resolution out and say, hey, what do you think? I want to do this. And I've never been told no because we stay in close enough contact and we're working together and everybody knows the vision and what's there. So a long-winded way to say we try to keep it simple and try not to put complexities
1: in I think it's fantastic. And I think what I heard you say, that's a really important structural thing for some of our listeners is even though you had additional board members, some of the most critical votes were done based on proportionate ownership, not on, you know, one vote per board member. And that's a governance thing, you know, a lot of founders out there, you know, if you're listening in, a lot of times you might not even know what you've created in your operating agreement or your bylaws. And it's really important that you go look and figure out, you know, what are my rights as an owner here? And how do decisions get made? And none of those things matter when the business is going great. Those things are easy, but it's when the business starts to run into challenges that those can become real issues. And so you want to know, like in Greg's case, imagine if instead of proportionate vote on some of these key issues, it was each board member gets one vote. You can do the math really quick. If Greg's the majority owner and it's a proportionate vote, then basically his vote is going to win the day. And it may depend on if it requires a majority vote, a simple majority, or a super majority where it's a bigger percentage of the vote. But at the end of the day, Greg has the majority of the vote in that case. Whereas if it was just one vote per board member, he's now only a 33% vote and he could have been overridden by the other two board members on any decision. And fortunately, it sounds like most of this was never an issue. A lot of times in companies, again, it's never an issue until there's a hard time happening, and then it can become an issue really quickly. So just make sure you understand those things as you're starting your company. How does this governance work? This actually matters a whole heck of a lot. I've seen it in a lot of companies come back to bite founders or come back to bite investors. So really important to understand. So Greg, thanks for pushing under the hood. Again, we want to help would-be entrepreneurs get out there and do things well. And you've created such a great model in the way that you handled everything. I think it's just fantastic. And listeners, the last thing I want to point out, and then we'll get this back to Greg, I'll shut up, but I really, really like he was able to set things up and maintain control the way that he did because he had outstanding relationships with his investors, Prior to them becoming investors, this type of control structure would never happen if he was going out to some brand new venture capital firm he'd never spoken with before. You know, at Mammoth, we do healthcare venture capital. We would not have invested on those terms. We would have wanted more investor protections. And Greg didn't have to succumb to those things because he had such good relationships with his investors. So I think there's a lesson in that for all of us. So, you know, Greg, then things start to really take off and I want to spend the remainder of our time focused in on what do you actually do at Sites Medical and then maybe a little bit of time at Mock Medical and then we'll wrap things up. So take us under the hood at Sites Medical and the way that you're bringing products and process innovation to the market.
0: Absolutely. So part of the learning I went through working for the other companies, I thought a lot about how innovation happens or is stopped from happening. And so we set up a business that really focuses on innovation. You know, our tagline is orthopedic technology invented here. And you know we we focus on that. So our first thing is we invent new product and process, so manufacturing processes or new product technologies. We go about de-risking those. So that includes everything from engineering testing to other things. And then we partner with OEMs. Those are large companies that are selling directly to the marketplace. We don't build a sales force selling to hospitals. We go to these companies and we work with them. They have massive sales organizations. They have plenty of capital to buy inventory. We work to decrease their risk, make the deals very easy for them. And as they gain a lot of success with the product, we make money on manufacturing it for them. And then later, they can take it away from us. And that lets us sell it to them. They already know it. They've already de risk it. And we move on to the next thing. And so it's really that three-step process.
1: I think it's fantastic, Craig. And I think everybody understands the idea of you help bring product innovation to the market. You know, you're helping develop new products, but I want to ask about something else you said. You said you also do process innovation and Mm -hmm. that might be something new for a lot of our listeners. What do you mean by that?
0: You know, maybe backing up just a little bit, it goes all the way back to that original vision for the company, lower cost products that perform really well, best in class products at a low cost. If you don't figure out how to manufacture them in a smarter way, than what's happened in the past, you can't get the cost lower. People have been making similar things for a long time. So we spend a lot of time trying to understand, looking at other industries, being creative ourselves, understanding what the problems are that are driving costs higher for certain products and trying to come up with solutions for that. So on the manufacturing side of the equation.
1: You just blew my mind, Greg. Here's what I think I heard you say. In the early 2000s, you are at a conference and you hear somebody saying, there's not going to be enough money to provide these products in the market. And the big companies all start saying, okay, we can fix that. And they just dumb the products down, taking away features, benefits. And instead, you put on your engineering hat. And actually, let's go back to you put on your farm hat, and you say, well, wait, let's not take away the features from the products. Let's go fix the way we manufacture these things. And if we can fix our cost and manufacture these things a lot less expensively, then we don't have to take away those features. Is that what Mm -hmm. you basically just said?
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's, that's what's been driving the inside for a long time.
1: That is absolutely incredible. And it, you know, listeners, it sounds so simple when you hear it, but this is that big company mentality. A lot of times we get in our own way. We think we've got to dumb this product down. It's the only way to fix this macro issue. And here's Greg in the business has a great solution for it. Obviously that plays out because sites is an incredible business today, but these large companies couldn't get out of their own way to let their person who's at the ground level with a wonderful solution, go deliver it. So there's another lesson in there for all of us as well, Greg. But when you go develop a product, are those all ideas that come from your team internally? Or where do you want to be sourcing those ideas from?
0: You know, we, we do come up with a lot of ideas ourselves. We come up with them from listening to our customers about their problems. And you know maybe later we can talk about culture that we've built around innovation in our company. But we love to get them from any place. So if there's a surgeon that has a great idea, if there's a, another engineer or manufacturing folks that have a great idea and they want to help implement it, we're trying to build the engine that can help make that happen for them. All the support structures. So basically from anywhere. We, we don't care if we invented it or someone else did, we like to help make it better. And maybe the way we make it better is figuring out the best way to manufacture it. Or one of our technologies that we've developed, we add it to it in a really unique way to help make their product better. So we'll focus that in any direction. And I've learned that whenever you do that, it's different for us now because I can communicate differently with the orthopedic surgeon than I could when I was at Zimmer. They're worried about the customer leaving. I'm worried about helping someone get a better idea and I can tell them if I don't think it's going to make any money and why and what we might be able to do together to make it better. I couldn't have done that when I was at Zimmer because that was the customer here. They'd be like a partner for how we work.
1: I love that. I love that. So I know we have a lot of surgeons that listen in, Greg. So surgeons, you heard this. If you're sitting there on a great idea and you're just saying, I don't know how to go take this to the world at the end of the show here, we're going to tell you how to get in touch with Sites Medical. So, you know, stay tuned for that. And Greg, one of the things that you've taught me is, you know, you can help with that design phase. You can help with bringing a product out. You can help with the manufacturing process behind a product. There are some products that long-term, it actually makes sense for you to continue to support their manufacturing needs. And I like the way you structured that. That's not done through the sites business, but you've created Mock Medical that actually Mm -hmm. can provide long-term manufacturing support as some of these products are developed. So tell us a little bit about Mock.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's when I began Sites Medical, I said, we're not going to buy a piece of equipment. We're not going to spend our capital that way. We're going to invent ideas and go to contract manufacturers only for manufacturing, and then we'll sell it off to the customer later. Well, we came up with some ideas that were really good. And we tried for 2 or 3 years to get our customers, other contract manufacturers to use some of our techniques and our technologies. And they all said, they're kind of cool ideas, but we already got it figured out. We're building things this way and that's the way we're going to go forward. Well, we know they're a really good idea to drive cost out of the system and that. So we stepped back and said, okay, how do we start? And change philosophy, but we put it into a separate company. We said, we are going to build the equipment because we've had multi-years now to figure out this is really the best way. And through doing that, we're approaching manufacturing in the same way we're approaching product design. We want to create solutions that are better and different and really targeted that solve that cost issue, solve the time to market issues, solve any of those issues. And so we built Mock Medical to do that. So they can manufacture any kind of product nearly, but they've got this revolutionary way. Their tagline is revolutionizing the orthopedic supply chain. And we go at being able to make product differently. So today in orthopedics, nobody makes one part at a time because it's too expensive. Well, with some of the technologies that we had in sites and some of the technologies that the team we put together at Mock have built, We can now make one part at a time for the same unit cost that before 100 parts to 1,000 parts at a time you'd make. And so it's by fully automating or nearly fully automating things, by getting rid of all those manual processes, all those manual inspections, collecting data in a different way, but then looking at problems even down to products like ephemeral knee when you make it, they're kind of C-shaped out of cobalt chrome. They move all over the place when you manufacture them. At sites, we figured out a method we call it cobalt chrome stabilization. They don't move anymore. You get the casting, it's dead on. So now you don't have to check the thing all the way through the process. You check it at the beginning and you check it at the end. And they'll be good all the time. Now we can fully automate that manufacturing line. So we've done that. Mock has figured out also how to have zero setup time. So that's the time it takes a product to go in have a good machinist figure out how to set it up on the machine and go, we got that down to zero or very near zero. So we try to approach it technology-wise like that. And now we have world-class manufacturing capabilities. Time to market's a big deal. Time to manufacture things. Inventory requirements are a big deal. We can address all of those problems with what Mock's doing and many more.
1: One of the things I heard you say, Greg, is you can actually do some one-to-one manufacturing at the same cost as a thousand to one. And I mean, what I'm hearing behind that is you can be customized to the specific patient. Exactly. Listeners, that's a whole different level. Think of it as, you know, if they're making a widget, let's call it a new part for our funny bone, because we don't want to hit that nerve anymore. And if they make a thousand of them or 10,000 of them, you can get your cost down traditionally because you're making so many, but they're all exactly the same. So maybe your funny bone is a different shape than my funny bone, but we're trying to fit this square peg in a round hole. We all get the same widget for our funny bone. And what Greg's saying is no, 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 no. We've manufactured in such a smart and efficient way. We could take that instead of making those 10,000 same Funny bone pieces, we can go make one and fit it specifically to you, specifically to me, and do it at the same cost as if we were making a thousand of those. That's just absolutely revolutionary. And when we think about customized patient care, that's just revolutionary and so critical to the entire manufacturing process, which, as you heard Greg talk about earlier, He believes, and he's proven, can drive the entire value chain for everything. And that's how they're able to build high performance products for people at a low cost because they're driving Mm -hmm. such high value in the manufacturing process. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's incredible, Greg. I'm just, I'm absolutely blown away. You're this hidden gem in my own backyard that I didn't even know until today. So I'm so excited. I'm going to come out and tour the facility if you'll let me in the door. Oh, yeah. I would. Love to come see it. And this is a great segue into my favorite part of the episode where I get to ask two questions. The first is the question everyone wants to know. And what it really means, Greg, is it's the question that I want to know that maybe (laughs) some other people will want to know. And then the second is the question everybody actually wants to know. And that's for some of our listeners where it makes sense for them to connect up with sites. How do they do that? So we'll come back to that. But my question for you today. You mentioned that Reinhold actually wrote you a note and he said, if you keep doing these things, you'll be successful. But you didn't tell us what these things were. So what were these things that Reinhold said? If you keep doing these things, you are going to be a success.
0: Some of it might be secret, but no, I'm kidding. Actually, no, it was, it's really practical things. He said, focus on the patient, focus on doing what's right don't worry about how much it costs first. You can figure that out later. You know, I said, just keep doing that. Focus on the customer, focus on doing what's right, making surgical products better and procedures better and everything's going to work out. And that was really what it was. So it's let me keep my focus on doing what's right, solving a problem that matters. And it happened to dovetail nicely with, you know, what I had in my heart that I wanted to do with this business.
1: Yeah. That was your whole vision to begin with. And here you have this validation from one of your heroes in the business world, you know, that Mm -hmm. this passion you already have, just stick with it and you're going to be okay. I mean, ah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. And boy, you know, if Reinhold ever hears this, what an incredible thing you've done and, you know, lighting a fire under this guy that's, gone into creating such an incredible future for the orthopedic world. So thanks and a huge shout out to Reinhold as well for the role he's played for you, Greg. And and this takes us into our final question, the actual question that a lot of our listeners will want to know. I know we have a lot of surgeons who listen in. We have would-be founders. We also have OEMs that don't always have the ability to get out of their own way to figure out how to innovate their manufacturing processes. And that's okay. I think one of the things big companies need to do sometimes is just admit, you know what, we're a big company. And that's not bad, but you can have the smaller company take a fresh look. And a lot of times you can come up with something that's a lot better. In fact, we're in the process of doing some of that with some of the proprietary technology we've built at Mammoth. There's this behemoth uh, traded on the S&P 500 that they just are too big to kind of get out of their own way. So they've had us become kind of a and d laboratory for them in some of our technology. So it's okay for big companies to do that. So whether it's a big company, whether it's a surgeon who has a brilliant idea and they just haven't gotten any traction with it, what is the way for them to get in touch with you at Sites Medical? Thanks,
0: Tommy. You know, it's, Probably the easiest way, go take a look at our website, www.sitesmedical.com. There's some contact information on there, or just shoot me an email, gstalkup at sitesmedical.com. Those would be the best ways, whether it's any of the folks that Tommy mentioned. We love to solve process problems. We have some great technologies that we can share with you. We love to hear about your problems so we can help solve those surgeons and others who have Something that they think we might be able to help them with. We'd love to hear from you.
1: That's incredible. So, listeners, again, that's sitesmedical.com. So, S I T E S medical.com. We will put that in our show notes, whether you listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, as well as uh, emailing Greg. And it's not easy to put emails in show notes, but it's G Stalkup. So, G S T A L C U P at sitesmedical.com and either of those ways you can reach out to sites. Uh, They'd love to hear from you and let them know you heard about them on Beyond the Ordinary. Listeners, thank you so much. We can't do this show without you. You've been incredible. Please continue to share this show with your friends that could benefit. We'd love for them to hear about us and we're so thankful to have you here. We'll see you back here next week on Beyond the Ordinary.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.